Good evening. This is Mr. Gadgets once again calling in, and I thought of something else, and I thought I'd do a little segment that is more on this history of computing BPC before PCs, before IBM PCs came in and really changed the landscape. Because really, that was two different kind of eras, and unless you lived through it, I'm not sure you really have uh, you know quite an understanding of what it was like. Uh, I mentioned before in a previous uh, little episode that I submitted that there was a S100 bus that was around. That was a 100-pin bus, real similar to the kind of thing you're used to now, except the pins were a lot bigger and the bus was a lot bigger. And these S100 bus cards, the, the physical connectors are way larger than what you're used to today, and uh, it was a kind of a standard for things that came in. And that was for CPM uh, computers. The, the CPM operating system was pretty much the only quote-unquote real operating system that was around uh, in these days. And uh, mostly that would be run on a, an F100 bus computer. So there was kind of a standard. It kind of worked between uh, different manufacturers and all those kinds of things. But... Uh, not so much. I, th there was an electrical standard, at least, that kind of worked. So most of the time, if you had an S100 bus board, you could plug it in and, and you could it would work electrically. But, of course, there were no drivers for it, and so you probably would have to rewrite the drivers for the board. <laughs> so it was still a catch-as-catch-can kind of thing. But it did allow expansion kinds of boards to exist and all those types of things. Those were a little bit more expensive and were really more kind of business computers, and I never had enough scratch for that. But uh, what I did, as I mentioned before, have is that Ohio Scientific Computer. Now, I mentioned I got a job working full-time in computers and uh, working for the local Ohio Scientific dealer. And he sold these larger-scale kind of Ohio Scientific machines into several businesses as far away as uh, Ames, Iowa, which is quite far from the Kansas City area. Not sure how that deal ever got in, where he got connected up with a guy from Ames, but various places around the Kansas City area. And it ran a version of Microsoft Basic, and pre pretty much everything ran a version of Microsoft Basic. And in these days, Microsoft's only product to sell was licensing Microsoft Basic on machines. And it was a little bit different on every single machine you found it on. There were slight differences, kind of having to do with input and output and things like that. Those machines, of course, had come up in the world, and you actually had disks. So we saw the beginning of floppy disks, and uh, we had five and a quarter inch floppy disks uh, were pretty common on uh, home machines and things like that. There were also 8-inch floppy disk uh, machines that were out there. And so the the big Ohio Scientifics had 
floppy disks, uh, and they had 8-inch floppy disks, in fact, on the larger scale one, and these were rack mount kind of systems. So, you know, you'd have a full, oh, four and a half foot tall rack mount box that would uh, come with the uh, with the, the car almost just ran out in front of me. Uh, <laughs> uh, they they would have uh, a a uh, eight inch dual eight inch floppy disks as a default, uh, and that was a larger capacity disk. We were not talking much of a capacity here in the old floppy disk days, uh, and the five and a quarters. We had one customer that he had sold the precursor to, uh, before he got this Ohio Scientific dealership, he had sold some kind of a, I can't even remember the name of these machines, but they had their own little kind of uh, a bus and five and a quarter inch drives and things like that. And, and uh, I can't even remember what the name of those were, but uh, he had sold those to a local lawyer. It was actually the guy who did his legal work, and for a while we shared offices uh, in a little office suite that this lawyer owned, and uh, and that was an interesting one because those were hard sector five and a quarter inch floppy disks. So there was actually a hole in the floppy disk for every single sector. Now the way floppy disks worked was there was a hole there, and usually they were soft sector floppy disks, which meant that there was one hole. And it would, of course, spin around. It was towards the center, right, the spindle side. And, and there was a little optical you know, reader that would see the hole go by, and then it could soft sector from that point on because it knew how fast the disc was a spinning. Well, the hard sector disc had a hole for each and every sector. And this had the extra advantage, see, of you could actually flip that disc over and use both sides of the disc. You didn't have to do anything to it. You just flip the disc over, you could write to both sides of the disc. And, in fact, I remember that this lawyer, he was a real small-scale kind of a, a lawyer. It wasn't kind of any big, gigantic firm, you know. And uh, one of his things was he did a newsletter for uh, one of the larger-scale, uh, upper, you know, cross kind of executive uh, developments uh, here in town, had a uh, – had a newsletter for their homes association and he actually had gotten the uh he would publish the newsletter for the homes association and in the process then here he would uh spend about two or three days a month just sitting there with that two disc floppy system putting out this newsletter and he had of course the mailing list but it was on a series of floppy disks so one floppy disk Mind as whatever the operating system was that you know whatever you can call the operating system this was on it wasn't on CPM it was on some other kind of a little thing and uh, so it was running the basic program that was basically you know the operating system was bring up basic right and he had this thing it was generating and had a nice nice little you know word processor to it and he could mail merge and put in these addresses. So that's how he put out the newsletter, and he had to spend, as I say, at least a couple of days, pretty much solid eight hours a day, just sitting there, taking that floppy disk, putting it in. It would read everything on the first side, and then he'd, he'd take it out and flip it over and read all the addresses off the second side. And he had it hooked up to a big, like uh, one of these typewriter-style printers. It was It was literally had a typewriter ball on it. Uh, it wasn't a selectric, but it was kind of like a, a selectric mechanism, so it was like typing out these things. 
and it looked just like a typed, you know, letter that would go out to them. And he flipped those discs, and he'd just constantly be flipping the discs. Uh, he was a constant problem because he smoked all the time, and that wasn't very good for the machine. So we'd have to go in and clean up the stuff, you know, from the smoke residue to keep this operation going. Uh, the big 8-inch floppy disk I was talking about on the Ohio Scientifics, uh, my, my boss found out that uh, they came free with double-sided disks because you could do double-sided disks on the saw sectors, but you had to have a disk drive that could be able to flip, flip it over and use both sides. And he found out that he had done that. And he went into one customer and said, well, how much would you pay me if you could use both sides of your disk instead of just a single side? And the guy said, oh, man, I, I paid like $100 for that upgrade. So then he went over and said some magic words and waved his hands over. He didn't take the money, of course. But uh, anyway, this system also with the big rack mount on the Ohio Scientific was a great business system because it had an 8-inch high rack-mountable hard drive. Now, hard drives were really hard to come by at this time. I mean, hard drives were really, really expensive. And hard drives on these microcomputers were almost unheard of. And this hard drive, like I said, is about eight inches in the rack mount, and it fit in the rack mount right underneath the CPU was a 20-meg hard drive, which was, oh, my Lord, that was amazing amounts of capacity, 20 megs, and it's a full rack mount size and eight inches tall, okay? And that's what it took for a 20-meg hard drive. And the other thing about this machine was it was multi-user. Now, it didn't have a multi-user operating system like Unix or anything like that. And keep in mind, this is still an 8-bit processor. Now, these, <laughs> these computers are also interesting because the processor wars were happening back then, and nobody knew who was going to win. Z80, who was competing on the S100 bus kind of side, and some other machines, and 6502, which was what the Apples used, right, and things like that, uh, and so that was the other camp, kind of, there were several things, like the Kim that I mentioned before, it was a 6500 processor, and the 6502 and the Apple, and then there was, and by then it was early Apple IIs, I guess we were talking about, and uh, and then there was the 6800, like the 6809 that eventually I had with my color computer. Well, these machines had a 6800 operating, 6800-based system. Ohio Scientific had 6800-based processors, and uh, their Microsoft Basic ran in 6800, you know, processor mode. Uh, 8-bit processors, all three of them, right? So this board had all three processors. Because theoretically, see, your computer would not be would not be extinct when somebody won the processor wars. Uh, they never did do anything with the Z80 or the 6502 that was on there, but they were technically there. And so we could have switched out. I think a dip switch or something could have could have switched it to use the other processor. And it was an 8-bit processor, but it had multi-user, and it actually had three memory boards that you could run three terminals off of one of these machines. Okay, so it was all terminals, it was all RS-232 input-output to a regular, you know, a TTY terminal, a green screen. Actually, these were gray, so it was a little easier on the eyes. Uh, and so you could have three users all hooked up to this machine, all using the one hard drive. And the way they got this multi-user to work in this, in this, you know, you've only got 64K of memory, right? You've got 65,000, whatever, 232, 300, whatever, 
bytes because it's an 8-bit machine. It can only address that much memory. So the way they did multi-user is, as I said, there is a memory card for each terminal. So there are three memory cards in there, and the highest 8 kilobits was where the operating system essentially resided. So that's where it loaded in to the high 8K. That's where the Microsoft Basic was running and the switching between these. And then it will multiplex between the three boards for the lower 48K for each user. So each user had their own individual 48K of memory to run their program in. And then the highest 8K was essentially the Microsoft Basic running because there was no operating system here. And I wrote programs for this for several different people. And there were input-output kind of statements. and there was no database, so I had to do my own linked lists to do databases and, and all that kind of stuff. And the, all this was based on this bus that was used on these. And this particular bus on Ohio Scientific used a Molex connector. Now, uh, you're familiar with the Molex connector. I know you are. If you've ever unplugged the power from uh, any kind of a drive, you know, the little the power for a, a, uh, a floppy drive or uh, a hard drive, the old style hard drives before the newer, uh, the latest uh, hard drives aren't like this, but older older style ATA hard drives, the power connector, that's a Molex connector, a little plasticky kind of thing, and it's got pins, and the pins go into holes, right, that are there uh, on the connector. So that's a Molex connector. Now imagine a bus which is a bunch of those pins, like a hundred of them, about, oh, a foot long. 100 pins spaced out, and that's your bus. And then you've got Molex connectors that are on the board that you plug into that bus, and nothing was gold-plated. So occasionally you would get a call and your system wasn't running, and my service call consisted of going in to the customer site and just – I didn't even have to completely unplug the board. I just had to loosen the board and kind of shake it around and force whatever – little oxidation or something was happening with these cheap tin Molex connectors, and I just kind of just, you know, move the board up and down and a little bit away to make sure all the electrical con contacts were good again, and then the system would come up. God never intended a computer to use a Molex connector as a bus. I can tell you that from experience. And so this was the kind of world we were in. Everybody inventing their own systems, using different processors. I still, to this day, own a Model 100, which was really the first laptop, uh, pretty much. There was an Epson out at about the same time. But the Model 100 was probably the most popular of these. And it has a 8-line by 40-character display, LCD, runs off of four AA batteries, has built-in Microsoft Basic, had a expansion slot that you could plug in things like a spreadsheet on a EEPROM or word processor, uh, dictionary kind of program on an EEPROM. And I had one of those brand new, and I also still own a second one that I bought used, used a few years back. I still own both of those. And it's kind of because if the world really, the, if there's really the end of the world as we know it, those are the two computers that I can use to rebuild the stuff because I can program in Microsoft Basic and I can just get a book with, you know, engineering, you know, calculations that need to be made and I can write a program still to do those calculations and do whatever it is we need to rebuild the world. So there you go. Uh, there are also really good terminals, you know, so I can use them as terminals when I was an amateur radio operator doing. Uh, 
doing things that needed a RS-232 terminal. Have a 300-baud modem built into them. Advanced technology here, folks, advanced. And that had uh, MS-DOS in it. I swear, I read, I can never find any references to it, but this is all pre-internet, so it's probably lost somewhere. But I swear I read in an article somewhere that Bill Gates, this is back when Bill Gates used to just still program, right? He was writing all these Microsoft basics or adapting them anyway. And he, uh, he uh, in this kind of planning session that they had for, uh, the, micro, for the, the Model 100, he got together and the Model 100, and he, he, I swear to God, he made a comment in this that it'll run some kind of a, a, a ROM-based version of Unix. And this is what he had in mind. Now, that's not what it ended up with, right? It ended up with uh, a very good Microsoft Basic on it. But, you know, this was the way he was thinking back, back in that time frame before IBM came along. And, you know, we'll maybe have another discussion about how DOS got to be DOS. But, uh, you know, specialized machines, you know, the, the whole trash 80s, the TRS 80s, uh, were a whole series of those. And I'll talk some more about some of the things that go beyond just the Model 1 and the Model 2 and the Model 3 uh, of uh, the TRS 80 computers. But, you know, there was those. There was another group. I mentioned my friend who built his synthesizer, you know, uh, from a kit, the PAIA synthesizer. Well, there was another company that was real popular here. This was a land of, this was an era of kit building, right? Heathkit, the big kit company, had its own computers. And uh, there was another company called Southwest Technical Products out of Oklahoma. And Southwest Technical Products had a computer of its own that was an 8-bit computer. I think it was... 6800 based, if I remember. And uh, anyway, they had a, a bunch of different projects. Some of them were computer-based, like this computer, and some other few things about that. They also had some audio kinds of products and, and things like that. So there were all these different things out there. And, you know, there were kits that you could build the computer yourself and program it yourself. Uh, there were people who were taking drives and adapting them so that you could have a disk drive instead of having to use a uh, a computer, you know, I mean a, a tape drive, you know, an audio cassette deck to save your program and load it in, which took forever. As those of you who uh, know about the Commodores and started on those, you know those. I have a little bit of a connection there. I'm not sure about your Commodore 64s, but if you owned uh, a Commodore VIC computer and you owned a you see, the Commodore VIC didn't come with a built-in modem. And you had to have a modem to do the BBSs, right? And so to do any kind of telecommunications with it, you needed a modem. And the Commodore VICs in the early 80s did not come with a modem built-in the way that the Model 100 did or some other computers of that ilk, of that time frame. Uh, a lot of them came with built-in modems. And modems were expensive, you know. Those was another hundred-some-odd dollars might you'd be adding to it to get a U.S. robotics modem. So having one built into the machine was was a big plus. Well, the Commodore Vic, the guy who used to run the recording studio in Kansas City, when he quit the university and uh, needed something to do, he started a company here in Kansas City that made a cartridge you could plug into the back of the Commodore Vic. And I don't know if they ever developed one for the 64, but uh, there was a a cartridge you could plug into the back of the Commodore VIC that was a 300 baud modem and allowed you to start doing things online 
with your Commodore Vic, and I know the guy who started that company, and they were making quite a bit of money there, making those things about as fast as they could here in Kansas City during the heyday of the of the Commodore Vic. And this was a landscape. It was a lot of different companies all doing different things, and it wasn't really until the IBM PC came along, so that's why I called it BPC, before PCs, right? Uh, it was a it was a wild west. It was a strange kind of world out here. And if you had enough money, you had an Apple, an Apple II, right? But that was kind of you know you had to have some scratch to be able to afford an Apple II. And all of us who didn't have that much money, well, we were, were you know running TRS-80s, you know, color computers, things like that. And everything had its own individual you know operating system or. Microsoft Basic, but knowing it on one didn't do you any good on the other. You know, you kind of had to relearn the specifics of it. And it was a kind of a crazy world that's almost amazing that uh, we came out of that as cohesive as we did. But really, the IBM PC is part of what did that. And I'll probably be ready to talk about that sometime next time in my History of Computing series here. Uh, but until then, this is Mr. Gadgets. I'm going to sign off for this time around. You can go out there to MrGadgets.com and see everything that I'm doing on Mr. Gadgets on Twitter or Identica and send me an email if you're enjoying these little walks down memory lane uh, or want me to talk about anything else because I've been around for all this. So if you've got any questions on anything, if I remember about it, I'll tell you what I remember about it. And I experienced it all the way from that very beginning there, and I've been working on it constantly full-time ever since. And uh, so send me a note to Hacker Public Radio at MrGadgets.com or just HPR at MrGadgets.com. We look forward to hearing from you and talking to you next time. This is Mr. Gadgets, and you be careful out here on this technological frontier, and I'll be out here trailblazing ahead of you. Bye now. Thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net. So head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.